weeks ago, I showed you a picture of a dog. And it fell flat. Let's be honest. Y'all didn't know who he was. Some of you did. It was Doug. And Doug had an issue. This is in the movie Up, a Pixar Disney movie. Doug gets distracted, and he gets distracted by squirrels. Well, some of you have thought that's real funny. And you keep sending me things about squirrels. I like Christmas gifts. But when a Christmas gift comes in a little bag on my doorknob on my office door, saying squirrels are everywhere, their eyes are on you. This is a fur baby. It's a squirrel fur baby. I don't know what to do with this, y'all. I mean, I'm just trying to be relevant, and now you're just making fun of me. Obviously, this is a squirrel moment in and of itself. I should be in the Bible, but you distracted me. So whoever did this, touche. Touche. Well, someone's going to think that might be sacrilegious. Let's just put it right here. I want to give you an inside view. I want to give you an inside view into how I think about an introduction to a sermon. So rather than actually do the introduction, I want to tell you what I would have done if I would have really gone all in. I would have talked to you about the self-help industry, the self-help industry. And I would have given you stat after stat of how big the self-help industry is, from books to conferences, to podcasts, to documentaries, I would have just laid a uh, laid out a heavy case that self-help is the new big thing over the last 20 years. And I would want you to feel that. I would have wanted you to connect with me at that point. And then I would have transitioned you to this. But the Bible also has a lot of practical advice. And then I would have told you And would you know that in today's passage, Peter begins into a section where he's giving practical advice on how to live in this world. That's what I would have done. That's what I would have done. So I saved you three minutes of stats by telling you just what I would have done. But today, we're going to be walking into a section that is very practical. So like Peter's going to be dealing with stuff in the weeks to come about how as a, as, a, as a husband in this world? How do you live as a wife in this world? How do you live as a slave in this world? But the first thing he's going to do is he's going to talk about how do you live as a Christian in a pagan society? So he's actually going to begin to use this kind of language. How do you live as a Christian in a pagan society? Now, I know many of us might think that we're living in a pagan society, but we're in a bit of a different situation that the early Christians would have, would have experienced. You see, it's not that it was a secular society, like we might think of today, where you're trying to push God out of so much. In the Roman Empire, the gods would have been very much a part of the civic world. They would have been part of the public sphere. It would not have been a desire to get rid of a god. It would have been a desire to determine what gods you worship for what purposes. And these gods would have been worshipped with all kinds of sensuality. You would have gone to the temple to practice Lots of inappropriate things with your body as a way of worshiping a fertility god or a way of expressing devotion to the emperor. There were all kinds of different ways of worshiping. And it was a massive marketplace of the gods. So when when Peter talks about a pagan society, it's not so much that it was secular, that there was no god. 
It said there were many gods, and the worship of those gods took on lots of inappropriate forms. But still the, but still the practical advice will remain. How do you live as a Christian in a culture, in a society, that does not reflect or bow the knee to Jesus? How do you do that? Well, we're going to just begin to step into that section. There's a lot there's a lot to cover in the weeks to come, but we've got to step into the first part of this first section of practical advice. Here it is. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. We'll pick up with verse eleven. First Peter chapter two, we pick up with verse eleven. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Do you see the tension? I hope you see it pop right there. Living a good life in the middle of a pagan society. So much so that when they see your life, they will glorify God when He comes. You've got, to show, you've got to show forth a light unto the nations. You've got to be a light in the middle of a really bad society. And they're going to accuse you of doing bad things, which tells us there's going to be a bit of a war going on here. Where you're living a good life, they're accusing you of doing wrong, and there's this deep tension inside of this society between those living good lives and those who are accusing you of living, uh, living bad lives. Uh, if, you, if, if you are familiar with that uh, famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, I wonder if, it's, if, this, if that, that teaching of Jesus is popping into your mind, just like it did mine when I read verse 12. You might remember Matthew chapter 5. Take a look. Matthew chapter 5. We'll pick up with verse 11. This is in that Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's almost like Peter was there listening to Jesus' teaching and it comes back to him decades later as he's penning these words in his letter to these Christians, Christians who are foreigners and exiles. You live such good lives, even in a world that will persecute you, that they can't help but glorify God. So that's a bit of a war. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like a war? Uh, in our own society where, where we as Christians are saying one thing, but it seems like the world is saying something very different, actually claiming that you actually are the bad guy, it almost sometimes feels like that's the tension. The world against God's people. It's right there. It's right there in the text, and it's something we're going to have to unpack in the weeks to come. But it's not the first war. It's not the first tension Peter leads with. There's actually something much deeper. There's actually a war that is, uh, that is much more personal. It's not the war between you and the world. It's not just your Christian faith and a pagan society. There's actually a war inside of us. And that's what Peter led with. 
So just to make sure we're all on the same page, take a look again. We'll highlight this section of verse 11. He said that we have sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Sinful desires which wage war war with your soul. So there's something inside of us that actually is at war. And he calls them sinful desires. That's the New International Translation. That's the English translation for the Greek there. I want to take a look at two other translations. A little more literal here, okay? Take a look at these two translations. Here's the Young's literal translation, the YLT. The translation here is, keep from the fleshy desires. That's, that's actually about as literal as we're going to get. Keep from the fleshy desires. The ESV, the English Standard Version, a, a more popular version, but still more literal, the translation is, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, if you notice, I've just highlighted this in red so we see it. There, there's an English word here that's not showing up in the one we read, the translation we read, the New International Version. It's the word flesh. It's the word flesh. That's actually the word in the Greek. It's sark. That's the word. That's the Greek word. And it literally means human body flesh. Like this stuff, uh, your flesh, that's what it means. So in John 1.14... When the Apostle Paul records this magnificent coming of Jesus, the thing we're celebrating at Christmas, he writes that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there is sarks. Literally, it's the same word Peter's using right here. But throughout the New Testament, the word flesh typically gets used not just for human biological material, it actually is used to say something about the human condition. I just want to quote just briefly one Greek uh, New Testament scholar. He says it this way when talking about this Greek word sarks, this word flesh. The overwhelming use of sarks or flesh in the New Testament, especially in the Pauline epistles, is to indicate the fallen, sinful, deteriorated human nature which all human beings have inherited from Adam. You know that sense of knowing something's bad, but you still do it anyway? You know that sense? That's your flesh. It's that life lived away from God that ultimately could spin out in lots of different ways, and all of them bad. It's where violence, it's where murder, it's where adultery, it's where pornography, it's where overdosing, it's where all of that stuff will emerge from, is from the flesh. It is that, it is that part of us that is fallen. And we have inherited that from Adam. Now, this is not to get us into the conversation of original sin. It is simply to say that every human being at some point, at some point, will go this way. Will go this way. Will go the way of the flesh. I was going to see then how Paul uses it in this one, in this one place in Romans chapter 8. I want you to see how he contrasts then. If the flesh is a life away from God, then... The Spirit is the life with God. I want you to see how Paul contrasts those two, just so we can see exactly how this word is being used, because it would be very important to understand what Peter's doing in 1 Peter 1, uh, 2, verse 11. Take a look at what Paul does in Romans 8. Look at how the contrast happens. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
The flesh is a way of life lived away from God. Where you and I do what we want to do. And we do it to the fullest. It's a life of indulging. It's a life of abuse. It's a life of, a life of hurtful decisions. And in the end, it's a life turned inward, where life is all about me and getting what I want, and the world centers around my desires. That's what the flesh is. The Spirit is completely different. The fruit of the Spirit are things like kindness and gentleness and love and patience and humility. Oh, the fruit of the flesh is something very different. It is violence and envy and bitterness and anger and slander, outbursts of rage. That's what you get in the flesh. Okay, so, so really then, the NIV is capturing really the meaning when it translated sinful desires. Because all desires aren't bad. My desire to eat is not a bad desire. My desire to eat to the point of gluttony, now we're stepping into a new, now we're into a new category. But the desire to eat is not a problem, it's when it goes off the rails. My desire for, for, um, um, physical intimacy. You get this. I'm trying. I'm trying to be very careful how I talk about this. Although we're going to read a passage here in a minute where Peter goes right out at it. Um, that's not a bad desire. That's what gets us babies. You want that desire. But when it goes off the rails, it hurts lots of people. And it becomes sinful. So we're talking about sinful desires. Sinful desires of the flesh. And here's the thing. These people that Peter's writing to, they lived a long time in the flesh. Take a look. I don't know if you've read this passage before, but yes, some of these words are in the Bible. And yes, there were Christians that actually participated in this and still struggled with it. Sometimes we look back in the ancient world and think, man, they had it so easy. Man, we have it so hard. Take a look at this list. Here it is, 1 Peter 4. This is just later in the letter. I mean, we're going to come to this passage. Here it is, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1-4. through 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live like the rest of their earthly lives, like the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now check this out. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Whoa. These were a people that were doing some pretty bad stuff. And they would, they would, you could, you could put them up against anyone in our world. These are people that were doing very bad things. And yet they came to Christ. And Peter says, don't you go back there. Don't go do that again. Don't go get drunk and go to that party and do those things you used to do. Don't go to the temple and do those things with those men and women that you used to do. Don't do it because, fundamentally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. This is what we looked at last week. Why don't you go and do that stuff anymore? 
Because remember what he just told them. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You're a different people. So you don't go do that stuff anymore. Now, if you're not God's people, that makes perfect sense. But you are God's people. Therefore, you don't do that anymore. But it's not like those desires just up and went away. You ever heard of a thing called muscle memory? Where if you learn to ride a bike at at 4 or 5, you can ride a bike at 45, right? It's because it's literally built into your body now. Can any of you untrain yourself to uh, to tie a shoe? Probably not. All of you know how to tie a shoe. Maybe. 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 I, I told you. I wouldn't say any names. You can't untrain that because you've trained it so deep in your, your muscle memory, you can't forget it. Can you forget how to speak English? Now, you can choose to speak bad English, but you can't choose to, to completely forget it because it's so ingrained in your muscle memory. This is a part of the human condition. We have been trained so long in the flesh, it is very hard to just forget it. And so that war is a real thing inside of Christians. It's why the gospel is such good news. Because if this thing was dependent on you not messing up again, well, we're all, we're out, all out of luck, aren't we? The gospel says that righteousness Jesus had, he gave it to you. Didn't mean you just immediately become, become righteous inside of yourself. You just don't immediately become good. That's what that's that big theological word called sanctification. Literally, you become more like Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is immediately you are considered righteous in the eyes of God, even with the war inside of you. Because I know some of us, we struggle. It's like, man, if I was a good Christian, I would never struggle again. No, the muscle memory is so deep, it takes years and decades to work it out. And the Spirit of God will eventually. So here's the, So here we find ourselves. Peter's saying, don't go back there. Deny yourself. You abstain from living that way. Don't you do it again. You literally use your body differently than you used to use it. You think differently than you used to think. This isn't like anything new for Peter, by the way. The Bible is full of calls to deny yourself. The most famous, coming from Jesus himself. Luke 9.23, take a look at what Jesus says himself. Remember, Peter would have been hearing this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You want Jesus? Then you have to deny yourself. Now, we typically think of that as like, man, that just sounds like such a hard call. Because in our fallen thinking... We tend to think that all the pleasures of this world are the great pleasures of the world. This is where C.S. Lewis, man, if I would have thought of this just days ago, I would have put it in. But I, obviously, maybe the Holy Spirit's having a moment where this is coming to my mind. There's this famous passage, I'm not going to get it exact, but Lewis says this, the problem is not that we desire too much, it's we desire too little. We have a glorious vacation at the beach in front of us, and we settle for making mud pies in the dump. That's what we're doing. 
You see, you see, the issue in front of us is not that God wants us to is God wants us to to be beggars, never finding delight, never having joy. No, God knows that there are delights you can't comprehend, and He's He is ready and able to deliver them. But you're going to have to give up making mud pies for the vacation at the beach. And if all you've ever known is making mud pies at the dump, you might tend to think that's the only the only good thing in the world. But God says, I got something better, something that you actually can't even fathom yet. But come on and I'll give you a foretaste. So you abstain from sinful desires because you know where they'll end you up? They'll end you up, that, that you will end up empty. Let me make one more point on this and let's read one more passage and drive right into application. The thing about the human condition is this. And the thing about sinful desires is that it is a form of idolatry. You literally are giving energy, you're giving attention, you're giving energy away to an idol. Literally, you're paying out. I mean, you go try to eat everything you can. At some point, your body will reject it. Go try to drink a bunch of alcohol so that you can enjoy yourself. At some point, it will, it will reject the alcohol. Go look at images on a screen that are inappropriate, and at some point, you will be left completely empty. And the reason is, is because as you pay out to the idol, as you give up your energy, as you give up your worship, guess what the idol will do? All it will do is take from you. It will never give back. And at some point, you will be left empty. You can't give up. You can't give up yourself infinitely. You are not an infinite being. But do you know what happens when you give your energy, your worship, when you, when you deny yourself so you can give back to God? Do you know what happens? There's a massive return on investment. He is the only infinite being that can give back when given to. All the other idols will take and leave you empty. And you will be a shell of a person. Okay. One more passage, Ephesians 4. Look how Paul says all this. Same thing, same thing, Ephesians 4, 17-19. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live, don't you live a certain way anymore, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. I think we all understand this. I think we all know somebody that, that you could relate to with this, this big principle. Uh, th th how drugs work. Let's just deal with like opioids. You take your first hit with one pill, you feel really good. But on the next one, what do you need? Maybe two pills. And then on the next one, what do you need? Maybe three pills. This is, and why is that? Because when you give into the flesh, literally your sensitivity declines. So what do you need for the next hit? You need more. This happens literally with every fleshy desire. If you want revenge on someone and you get a little bit, guess what you're probably going to go for the next time? A little bit more. It's because when we, our heart goes dark and the mind breaks and we give our bodies over and we indulge, we literally lose sensitivity. We think, the lie is, 
Go get more and more pleasure comes. But that's the lie. The more you give over, the more you have to give. Because the less you feel. No human being has ever won the indulgence game. None. No drug addict has ever beat the drug. You have to abstain. That's the way you beat the drug. You can't take the drug and win. You get the point. Opioids are are one that I think all of us can relate to, but this goes across the board. We're going to see it in just a moment. So let's drive to some application then on this point. Because I want to ask a question. Because we started this whole thing about being good people in a pagan society. And you would think that might be where we land the plane. I don't think that's where we need to land at all. Here's, here's where I want to start our application. The first question is not, do people see that I'm good? Rather, it's, do I indulge my flesh regularly? Now, that sounds a bit churchy. I get it. Like, i got to go a little further with this. But if I was just a churchy preacher, just using Christianese language, I mean, we just land right there. But what in the world? Indulge your flesh regularly. What does that look like? Ah, good question. I have an answer. Here is a series of questions. See if you can relate. Here it is. When I want to, so you're asking yourself this question, when I want to gossip, do I? When I want to cut someone out, do I? When I want to give someone the, now here, I didn't think I could put the next word in church. I'm letting you go there. But since we all live in real life, I thought that might be an appropriate one. Do you? Do you give it? When I want to grumble and complain, do I? When I want to gaze at attractive bodies, that was my way of saying that kindly, do you do that? Do you let your gaze linger? Do you click on the next thing? When I want to flirt with someone who's not my spouse, do I? When I want to cheat a little bit to get ahead, do I? When I want to get back at someone, do I? And passive-aggressive methods count just as much of aggressive methods. Don't you be that person that say, well, I never yell at him. I just don't talk to him forever. No, that's just as aggressive. Do When I want to get on my phone, do I? Now, this is related to when nothing else, it doesn't matter what else is happening. You might be in that position where you're at home, you have responsibilities, you need to be present, but you're like, man, I'm disengaging. To Facebook I go. Indulgence. And when I want to overeat, do I? Until I'm ready to bust. I mean, I want you to take, take, consider all of these things. These are ways that we indulge. No problem with eating. There's a problem with regularly eating way too much. There's a problem with flirting with someone, not your spouse. And all of us know what that might look like. Don't play the, well, I never slept with them game. You know when something emotional begins to happen and you indulge that. You get the, you get the point on all of this. So, so, so we really need to consider when are we indulging all this? And I think gossip, I think revenge, I think envy, I think jealousy, all of that's in play here. Those are all of the flesh. So let's go to another question then. So that kind of drives me to this question. How are we training ourselves to say no to our flesh? I mean, there is training involved here. I mean, what in the world are you doing and what am I doing to literally just say no? Like, I want to disengage. I'm ready to get on my phone. 
and I'm saying consciously, no, I'm going to be present. Like, there's, i got to learn how to do that. i got to learn how to say no, because if you never tell yourself no, guess what? You'll always say yes. And that doesn't lead to a good place. That will ultimately lead to death. Okay, so i got to ask this part about training. Now, for some of us that might go, whoa, whoa, what do you mean training in the Christian life? I thought I'm saved by grace. Yes, we're saved by grace. But God's grace always moves us forward to action. So there's this famous quote by Dallas Willard. I'm not saying you know it, but it's one that he's well known for. You know that Dallas Willard's a favorite of mine. And so here's something he said about grace. Check this out. He said this, grace, saved by grace, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You've never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by God's grace. God's grace saves you. You didn't earn. You did not earn your salvation, so give up on that. But God's grace fuels you to actually say no to your flesh. So we need to be a people who train. So the next time you're like, I'm going back for a fifth serving. Now this just might be my problem, not your problem. Because when we have peanut M&Ms in the house... I mean, it's on. It's on. And I'm telling you, I really struggle with this. And then I'll swing the pendulum the other way, and then I won't eat for a while, so I try to make up for it. But it's all indulgence. Or when I want to gossip about someone, man, I'll catch that in some holy language. It's still indulgence. When am I saying no? Good thing is, all this training language, I'm not just making it up. The Apostle Paul actually talks, right, I mean, talks about this. New Living Translation. Look at this passage. 1 Corinthians 9. 25 through 27. This is our last passage, and we'll just land on the next step. All the all athletes are disciplined in their training, right? Yeah, absolutely. All athletes are disciplined in their training, they, and they do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose at every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others myself, I might be disqualified. So, like, what are you doing to train yourself to say no? Because when you train yourself to say no in one area of your life, guess what? It has a way of spreading to every part of your life. Discipline, discipline in one area is discipline in all areas. It, 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 that's how this thing works out. In the soul. So we have to learn to abstain from sinful desires. And that involves training. So here's your next step. Here's my next step. And man, this one's been kicking me. Because I write these things before I ever get to you. This one, this is one of those moments where I was like, why, why this, Jason? I could have had a whole other handful of M&Ms. But no, you had to have a next step where you were telling people this. Fast. Fast. That means, like, don't do something. Fast from something each day this week as a way of training your mind and body to abstain from your sinful desires. And you don't have to fast from something you struggle with. Maybe it's just something you do a lot. So if you're like a big social media person, then fast from being on social media for half the day. Wouldn't that be a great place to start? I'm telling you, saying your no to yourself there will translate into other areas where you can say no. If you, like, are all about sharing posts, and some of them aren't very kind or they're a little bit off color, don't post for a day. Maybe that's your fast. If you like talking about other people, 
Maybe your goal one day a week this on one day this week is you're not going to talk bad about anybody. I, just figure out something. The point of the fast is to train yourself to say no. If you do not train to say no, if that is not a place that I am living, then I am doing the opposite by default. I am training my body to say yes to everything I want. And that has never, ever turned out well. Let's pray. God, I just pray that we, your people, foreigners and exiles in this world, would abstain from our sinful desires. Now, Holy Spirit, bring the right fast to mind each day and give us the strength to say no so that we may be your people living good lives in this fallen world so they may see your glory. We pray that under the name of Jesus, his power and authority, together we say.